We're in John chapter 8, and uh, chapter 7, the rulers of the Jews have basically accused the people of not knowing their Jewish heritage. And that's bold, because if a Jew knows anything, he knows his heritage. And the rulers, they pose some questions to the people and to the temple guards. Are you deceived? And they're speaking about uh, accepting and believing in Jesus. And the, the rulers say, hey, none of us have believed in Jesus. And then they say, search the scriptures, search the records, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Well, the rulers happen to be wrong on all points. The people, the temple guards, they're not deceived, they believe. And the rulers, they should believe. And then we have several prophets that did come out of Galilee. Jonah, uh, that Jesus makes reference to. Elijah, considered the premier prophet of Israel. And there was a couple other prophets from Galilee. But when, as a ruler, you speak down to your audience, and you make them look ignorant before they're given a chance to even speak, that is what we would call religious and political bullying. They're bullying the people. And they're trying to shame the guards and the people into silence. And their threat is, if you don't go along with what we're saying, we just might excommunicate you. And that was social and financial ruin for any Jew, especially there in Jerusalem, to be excommunicated. And that threat caused fear in the Jewish people, cause them to fear in their hearts. Today and then, many religions keep their people living in fear. It's one way to keep control of the people. It's also a way to keep your financial coffers full. You can persuade people to give using fear. Let me cite one, and I'm not trying to pick on any religion, but give us your money, and we will pray that your loved ones will be relieved of purgatory. There is no purgatory. <laughs> but yet, there's pressure that we will pray them out of purgatory. I have a, well, I just plain don't watch TV ministries. Mostly the ones that scheme and pressure their listeners and their viewers to give. But in the last verse of chapter 7 of John, it says, And everyone went to his own home. And then we have the Pharisees, 
They want to test Jesus. They want to make him look bad. They're trying to trap him. And they're doing this with a woman who has been caught in adultery. The timing of this event, we're not really sure where it took place or when it took place. All we know is that it took place. And so uh, it's placed in John 8, 1 through 11, the story of the adulteress caught in adultery. But as we read it, notice the grace and humility of Jesus as he deals with this woman that's been caught in adultery. John chapter 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus, he didn't go home. He went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is right after the Feast of Ingatherings, and apparently Jesus has hung around the temple area for a few days, and he's found there in the temple teaching. And Jesus' style of teaching, as it was a lot of people in that day, you would sit and teach a relaxed, informal atmosphere. But in the middle of Jesus' teaching, the scribes and Pharisees, they bring a woman caught in the act of adultery and set her before Jesus. There's no decency here. These scribes, these Pharisees, for them, this woman has been set up for failure. Even death. How do you catch a person that's in the very act of adultery? You gotta be laying in hiding. You gotta be there secretly. And, uh, you're waiting for this act to commence. This woman, she's brought before Jesus, held with, against her will, but she's in total shame by the ruling authorities. Now, let me try to set the scene a little bit. 
She's probably wrapped in a bed sheet. They don't give her time. They don't care if she's shamed. So she's probably grabbed something just to cover her nakedness. And this is a total setup. And they want to use this woman shamed as a pawn against Jesus. The man that was committing adultery with her, probably one of the accusers, uh, he's conspicuously absent or silent. And these authorities proceed there, and there's got to be at least two of them that are in total agreement as witnesses of this sexual act. This woman, she's been the focus of a plot, and it's to test Jesus. And her death means nothing to these accusers. Whether she lives or dies, it doesn't even matter to them. However, the man caught with her is of absolutely no concern to them. They don't even bring him into the presence of Jesus. These authorities, they want to trap Jesus in their net of the loophole they think there is in the law against grace. They think they have him trapped. And they quote the law to Jesus. Moses commanded us that such people caught in adultery should be stoned. Now to stone her, they had to catch her in the act. You couldn't go by hearsay. They had to actually catch her, and you had to have the two witnesses that totally agreed. And then the scribes and the Pharisees and the rulers, they say to Jesus, but what do you say, Jesus? And Jesus says, if he says, hey, let her go, he would appear to break the Mosaic law. If he says, execute her, he would appear cruel and uncaring. And he would also be breaking the Roman law that says you Jews cannot execute. You do not have the power of capital punishment. Rome had took away capital punishment for any Jewish religious breaking of the law. But you know, it's hard to trap Jesus with man's logic. These Jewish authorities, they think they have Jesus trapped. They think they have the perfect setup. He can't say yes or no. He is trapped. But it's hard to trap or predict an answer from God who knows your thoughts. One note on the law, by the way, to execute her for adultery was not required. It was an option. It was not required. You didn't have to stone her. You could stone her. And so they're wanting Jesus to give a sentence one way or another. Now, for them to demand her to be executed, they had to have at least two witnesses in perfect agreement. 
with no disagreement on any point of the matter. They want a severe judgment from Jesus where they can turn him over to Rome and say, hey, Rome, this man, he, he, he's wanting to kill someone against your law, Rome. So they say to Jesus, what do you say? Now, the way Jesus handles this is absolutely amazing to me. Jesus responds to what do you say by stooping down and writing on the ground with his finger. Jesus feels no pressure to immediately respond to the accusers. They want an answer and they want it now and Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground. No outrage by Jesus, simply humility. He stoops down. Perhaps he's kneeling next to this woman that's caught there. She, I think, is probably on her knees before her accusers. And Jesus is identifying with this shamed woman. By stooping down, Jesus eases her shame. He's, no stand, he's not standing looking down upon her. He doesn't stand to condemn her. He stoops down to identify with her. So the question becomes, and there's a lot of speculation on, what did Jesus write on the ground? Some think it was Exodus 23.1. And Exodus 23.1 is, do, do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. He could have been writing that. But here's what I personally think Jesus is writing. I think Jesus is naming names and places. And I think he's naming names of the accusing mob and their judgment. And perhaps he's revealing the sins of these men that have this woman whom they're condemning and accusing. And he's linking their name perhaps even with her also. But these accusers, they could continue to demand an answer from Jesus. And Jesus doesn't feel any pressure to answer him right away, but he raises himself up to look the accusers in the eye and listen to his words. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. What a beautiful thing. It's a simple truth. These accusers have plotted to test Jesus and the death of the woman. Well, that's just part of their plot. And she is simply a victim of the ruler's greater sin. Their sin is greater than hers. And Jesus said, hey, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. Human nature, even Christian nature, 
we can sometimes overlook our own sin to condemn others. It's been said that it's real easy to see my sin in someone else, and it is. We can easily identify the traits of sin when we see them in others that are battling against sin. So Jesus is saying, how about your own sin? We so readily accept forgiveness for our own sin, but condemn others. And we see this oftentimes come from the pulpit of many well-known preachers and so forth. But these Jewish rulers are very guilty. Guilty of accusing this woman of sin when they are full of sin themselves. Verse 9, and when the accusers hear, not look upon, but hear the writings, their conviction is prominent. It comes very real. It speaks to their conscience. They hear Jesus' writings. They hear them. That's why I think Jesus was naming names. And I think he was linking names with sin. Because we see them, when they hear the writings, they begin to leave, beginning with the oldest first. These accusers, they still have a conscience. Or maybe they just afraid of being shamed in front of everybody else. But I think it gives them hope. They still have at least a conscience. The older ones, more sins, they leave first. And now we have Jesus alone with this woman standing there. She may have been kneeling before, but now she stands her accusers have all left, and Jesus now raises up. I think Jesus may have even reached over and took her by the hand and stood her to her feet. Don't know that, but I think he did. And Jesus has two questions for this woman. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? And second, has no one condemned you? The woman answers. Her answer is simple, straightforward, very brief. No one, Lord. Her answer is only three words, but it reveals her conversion. She's been there in the presence of God, condemned by accusers, but her accusers have left. Now this woman, who was brought there expecting to die for her sins, confesses that she has no one that accuses her. She also confesses Jesus as Lord. Her three-word answer is one of belief. 
And isn't it the truth? The moment we believe is the moment we're born again. It's not a long, drawn-up process. When belief occurs, salvation occurs. The moment we believe changes everything in our life. And here she stands, and the only one who could condemn her gives her absolution. Only God can forgive sin. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And what a beautiful picture of the compassion of Jesus with no condemnation. Jesus stoops and he takes the sin of this woman upon himself. He's there. He's kneeling before her. And he takes her shame by stooping down next to her. He lowers himself, not to condemn, but to forgive. This woman caught in adultery probably will suffer rejection from her community, will probably be divorced by her husband because it is adultery. She's committed marriage infidelity. And her shame will follow her. But her shame comes from simply being a sinner. And she takes comfort in being forgiven. Jesus' final words to her are, are worth noting. He says, neither do I condemn you the only one that could condemn her says, I don't condemn you. And then he tells her, go and sin no more. Jesus calls her, stop sinning. Be conformed to life from death. And you know that's what Jesus done for every one of us. He called us to life from death. And for that, we are eternally grateful. What a beautiful example of our Lord when a sinner is brought before him and how he handles it. No condemnation, forgiveness. Amen. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.